This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. I'm here for a live, socially distanced podcast, sitting at ends, different ends of a table in a nice, large, open, and airy space. I feel like we have to say that just to kind of you know, people s- at ease. set the stage for this. But uh, at the world-famous ABGB in Austin, and uh, here with uh, Swifty Peters, Amos Lowe, and Kim Meisner. Uh, Swifty and Amos are co-founders of ABGB. Kim's a brewer for ABGB, and uh, I am thrilled to talk about Lager State. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. You know, this is actually not the first podcast. We've actually recorded two other podcast episodes in at the ABGB. Um, It was the Monkish podcast with Henry uh, Nguyen and it was the uh, podcast with Trevor Rogers of DeGard, which we actually recorded out here in 2018 when we were down here for you know, for our brewers retreat, when uh, while folks were, you guys were actually brewing oh, during that. Oh, that's right. And so I we couldn't, that, yeah. so we couldn't do a podcast <laughs> at that time. Um, but I'm incredibly excited to get back and uh, and talk about loggers right here with this uh, light up sign that says "pills, pills, pills" right behind us. Um, obviously, it's a favorite subject of ours. Swifty's got his "pills, pills, pills" shirt on. Um, we're going to d- uh, dive into Pilsners, and I'm going to specifically make that plural because uh, it's not a singular thing here at the ABGB. We're going to talk about what makes their Pilsners different, some of the um, techniques they use. Um, obviously, a deep respect for tradition, but also not slavish to it. And, uh, and we're going to dive into uh, some of the ways that they think about constructing them and some of the finer techniques they use to, uh, to make really compelling and incredibly award-winning bloggers uh obviously go look at the gabf awards uh, uh you know histories and the, these folks have taken more medals than i could possibly count i, I shouldn't say that because that would you know i, I can probably count at least to 100 and i know it's not quite that <laughs> I, I put it the wrong way <laughs> uh yeah i don't want people to think i yeah anyway is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling gnd chillers to set the standard on quality service reliability and dedication to their customers craft new this year redundancy meets efficiency gnd's micro channel condensers are built with all aluminum construction which eliminates galvanic corrosion using half the refrigerant of conventional condensers with fewer braised connections translates to a lower GWP and less opportunity for leaks. Call GD Chillers today to discuss your project or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by Sativa from BSG Hops Solutions. Meet the latest in the BSG Hops Solutions portfolio. Sativa, strong expressions of stone fruit, floral, and resinous pine flavors and aromas define this blend. Crafted specifically for use in hazy IPAs and other hop-forward beers. Sativa is ideal for aroma, whirlpool, and dry hop additions to hazy and juicy IPAs or for any other hoppy styles where a combination of citrus, tropical fruit, and pine aromatics are desired. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more or call 1-800-374-2739. So give me the story of ABGB and give me uh, if you can wrap some of your individual pasts into this too. How, uh, where was the start in brewing and uh, what was the career path that, uh, that got each of you to where you are today uh, here at you know, this lager-centric brewery at the ABGB? 
I was a mechanical engineer for most of my life, and, uh, and that's, brewed, Am- that's Amos. That's Amos, and I brewed in my driveway quite a bit, and had had a pretty good deal of experience in construction, and was tiring of it a little bit, and uh, kind of wanted to do something different, wanted to have more fun, and uh, I enjoyed brewing very much, and I, and I love brewing science. Uh, and then, of course, you end up with beer at the end of the day, which is pretty good. Sure, sure. So uh, I would hassle Swifty. Swifty, we'll talk to you here in a minute and tell you his story. He was uh, at actually the Bitter End at that time, which was a pub here. And I would go in there and talk to him about lager beers and stuff because he started Live Oak, which he'll tell you about. Sure, sure. And uh, I just kept, you know, practicing and practicing and getting better and saying that I was going to one day do this and never actually got around to doing it. And a friend of mine who was another co-founder, Kurt and Jill Noblock, used to come to UT Games in Austin. And then we'd go to my house afterwards and I had a couple beers on tap that I made. And then we'd, of course, have several beers and start talking about how we're he's moving to Austin and we're going to build a brewery and I'm going to be the brewer. You know? <laughs> right, right. And so really, Kurt is the one that sort of drove it into being. Uh, I wanted to do it, and I had these nice dreams while I was in my comfortable right. engineering career, you know. Uh, and leaving that behind to become a brewer didn't make any sense at the time. At that time, the only way you could really make a living brewing was own the brewery. Right. The, the guys right. that were making all these great beers weren't really getting paid much. And so uh, as an engineer, I did pretty well, and it didn't make any sense. Sure, sure. But uh, I have the best wife in the world, and when I brought the idea to her, she said yes, which is insane. And uh, Kurt moved to Austin and we started the project. We started planning and sort of figured out how we'd make it happen. Right. Went through several different iterations of what we were going to do. And uh, in that time, Swifty hired me to brew at Barton Springs, uh, Uncle Billy's. And he was going to build another brewery, of which he had already built a couple. So uh, he hired me to work there and sort of trained me up on that equipment and got me going and, and started it in the professional realm and I would start, I brewed one day a week yeah, for a while. And then I had a really challenging year and I decided I was leaving engineering and going to be a brewer and, and, uh, Kurt moved to Austin and, and that the rest is history, I guess. And then later sort of during the planning situation, we brought Swifty in and Swifty joined the team and, uh, we became a brewing juggernaut and, <laughs> well, it was that's an understatement. Yeah, but yeah. first construction construction juggernauts. We had to build the place, right? So right, we, right. we decided to come in here and and uh, make this happen. And my past career really helped. I had a lot of favors. Uh, thank you to all my friends in the engineering and architectural world who helped me and saved me a lot of money and made this possible with the amount right. of money we had. Uh, so I I received a lot of favors and love, and uh, I appreciate that a great deal. And they know who they are. Um, so first we had to build it and then we got it built and then we had to start making beer and that's the fun part, right? Absolutely. So. We'll talk about that one in a second. Swifty, what, uh, talk to you. What's your career? It's a long and storied one. Well, the biggest point was realizing like Amos that you're going to give up your lucrative engineering career for basically not even half of that amount of money for the, you know, for, right. for, for who knows how long. So Live Oak was basically a startup with bootstrap money, you know, no money. I think we started it for less than 300,000 back in 96 or 97. And um, it it's just like, my wife was very supportive. Anyway, I, it, it, it was amazing to go years and years and just kind of write IOUs and just pretend it's gonna be okay. And we're gonna make money someday. 
and now Live Oak has made it and survived and I'm proud of it. Um, it's uh, Chip is doing great running it and I was ready to get out and do something different. So that's when I started brewing at Bitter End. Amos and I would chat about lagers and um, I had obviously been into making Czech style pills and I love making German pills. I just, you know, as a home brewer, I was just interested in making what was regarded as the best beer in the world. And at the time it was Pilsner or Cal. And so I was like, well, I want to make Pilsner or Cal. And so that's kind of how I got started making lagers just because it was a challenge and it tasted pretty good. So that, you know, that led us down this path where he, we started talking Czech Pilsner and German pills and he was at Uncle Billy's a few times and I said, come brew once a week, just tell your boss. And he did. And it, and it just kind of once we went to Chicago as with Uncle Billy's and won a World Beer Cup uh, medal, uh, I think he was definitely sold on the idea of being a professional brewer. So that was great. We as, as a pair, we were like, yeah, we, we got we had like similar thought processes, processes as we were both engineers and and use like to use science instead of just kind of like the the art of brewing we're more of the science of brewing so we're i think it works well especially for the styles of beers that we really like especially like lagers so yeah i was happy that he said yes uh come join the team i helped set up the brewery and uh we kind of came up with the beer list it was fine-tuned into what well, we brought in a second lager as a full-time beer and then on our hundredth batch brought in a third lager as a full-time beer, making our lives a little more challenging in the process. But at the time it was just, it seemed like a natural fit and we were in love with the beer. That was Rocket 100 and everybody was like, oh, this should be full-time too. So anyway, and that's kind of where we are today with those three lagers um, full-time and then a rotating cast of lagers whenever, whenever we can get them on. Sure, sure. When did, uh, when did Kim join the team? I think it was one year in. Was it one year in? Into ABGB? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Then uh, I did landscape architecture for a while, and I kind of had the, okay, this is this is getting old, and I would always go to Bitter End and drink Bat City Lager, and then at Uncle Billy's, I fell, in t fell into the uh, axe handle, the pale ale craze, and eventually just started harassing them to see if I could just come intern back then you didn't just get hired you had to prove yourself and <laughs> so which means we don't pay you yeah until you exactly know until yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so worked at uncle billy's with them for a little while and then uh went out to real ale and then yeah got a call a couple years later i invested all the time in training her so <laughs> When I lost her, I was like, oh, okay, well, that's all right. Uh, and right. the circumstances were what they were. But then as soon as we had ABGB going and we had, you know, right now we're in a strange time in the entire world and, and businesses are slow and whatnot. But when we're busy, we're really busy. And it turned into right. a, a pretty obvious decision at that time. It was like, oh, we need some muscle. We got to bring somebody else in here. And, and it was like, Kim is already ready. She's You'd already, already trained, trained. Her up in your program. Sure. I totally trust her with my fermenters. I know, you know, she's going to do the right thing. And right. so that was an easy, easy decision for us. So well, let's talk about those beers themselves and especially, yes, those Pilsners and those Hellas. Before we do, a brewery might have 99 problems, but your fruit supplier shouldn't be one. Old Orchard is already known for their quality concentrates. 
but they also pride themselves on consistent product and reliable supply. When brewers need assistance, Old Orchard is just an email, phone call, or even a text away. Based in Greater Grand Rapids, Michigan, better known as Beer City USA, Old Orchard is core to the brewing community. To join their fruit family, learn more at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also for years, Brewery DB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery and beer information and responsible for mapping millions of visits to breweries all across the United States. In early 2021, Brewery DB will reveal a whole new platform with all new marketing features for breweries to attract craft lovers to their unique brewery experience. To take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of Brewery DB and to increase your taproom traffic, visit marketmybrewery.com. That's marketmybrewery.com. It's easy and it's free. So you developed this interest in brewing lagers and you have, you know, you launch ABGB with one in a year or one or two lagers and then, you know, keep adding Pilsners to this. And you also start keep winning awards along the way um, because everybody else loves drinking your lagers. Talk to me about that, that over years then of, uh, you know, first at Live Oak and, you know, then at, uh, you know, at the ensuing breweries, like how you honed your idea of, what pilsner could and should be well i'm a big believer in it tasting like you're in europe so that is probably the beginning of the process for me yeah it's close your eyes does it taste like you're in munich when you're drinking the hellas and close your eyes does it taste like you're in prague when you're drinking the czech pills so uh definitely traditionalist and sure, there sure. was none of that happening that I was aware of in 96 when we started Live Oak. Oh, as no, much. Craft, craft Beer was trying to get as far away from lagers as they possibly could. Yeah, and it was like, for us, it was, we were pretty into like, the, we did decoction brewing and we did a lot of the old school, old world stuff. Um, really were like gung-ho, uh, super labor intensive to the point where I don't necessarily recommend that anymore. And I love everybody who wants to do decoction. God bless them. But it's just too much work, I believe, for like an everyday, unless you have it like plumb that way and you can just hit a button. Um, doing it by hand is really hard. <laughs> I was going to say, you were doing it completely. <laughs> yeah, Live Oak was this. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know what today's dollars is, but 300,000 gets you maybe six or 600,000, maybe whatever. And you can't build a brewery. And it was all dairy tanks and used equipment right. and modified where we would pump the mash around and, and put it into the kettle and boil it and pump it back, crazy stuff. But anyway, um, my, we thought it really was gonna make a difference. We, uh, part, partly I started being skeptical of more of like, it, like people would notice the difference. I thought it was more that we could get some notoriety from it and that was part of it. Like Michael Jackson came to visit the brewery and everybody, you know, his, of that guild was more into like the old traditional style of making beer or European style of making right, beer. So right. it, it kind of got us some press. Um, but still, when it's, you know, when it's on, it's the best, check, you know, one of the best check pills in the countries for sure. Um, and so then, yeah, I just carried that into, brew, when I go to a brew pub that I'm basically not, that I don't own and all of a sudden I have to make a lager, it was, it's a lot more challenging when the brewery's not designed for it. So neither the Bitter End or Uncle Billy's were designed to make lagers. So there was uh, kind of a, just do it as well as you can, like with what you have. Right. And so that's a lot of what you learn when you're, or a lot of learning is just using what equipment we have to get, get by. To, 
none of none of the, only one of those breweries had a full-time lager. That was Bitter End. And all of it was done in Grundy's. Everything that the Bitter End uh, did was ferment and then lager and then serve after a defiltration out of a Grundy. And it was all done in cold rooms. So there was no jacketing, no glycol. So, I mean, you, you can do anything. And, and the beers were good. The Bat City Lager was good. It was an, uh, like an amber style lager. You can get it done, but it wasn't easy. And, uh, and then when you start designing the brewery like we did here to actually make lagers, it's, it's way better. And that's kind of like my, my thing with a lot of people jumping in thinking lagers is going to be fun to make because it's a trendy style. It's not easy be, for them because they're not designed, the brewery's not designed for it. So it's a little more challenging. Let's talk about that a little bit, you know, because the design of your brewery, like there's, you're not using giant horizontal tanks, you know, you're using conical fermenters, you're breaking a lot of the assumptions and the kind of traditionalist um, argument, you know, for the technique and the kind of brew house that you would have to have in, or, you know, uh, in order to make those. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, how you made built a brew house that was specifically designed to make those lagers, even if it doesn't look like say the live Oak, uh, brew house. <laughs> it's or, a, or the, uh, the live Oak fermentation cellar. Yeah, we're we're yeah. a hybrid. <laughs> we're, uh, you know, things evolve, right? And technology gets better and, uh, you learn as you go and those kinds of things. And, and what we're doing, we're doing a, uh, you know, we step our lagers usually, and uh, then we go into a conical, and that makes our lives really, really a lot easier than trying to ferment in a, in a horizontal tank. When we do our conditioning, we go into a horizontal tank. Okay. So uh, we get the benefits there, but as far as the brew house running and in a brewery this size and what we're trying to do, using the conical fermenter helps us to succeed. And it's, you know, I we've had a lot of success with our lager beers. So the, the system is that is working for us. Uh, and I guess there's all kinds of arguments about fermentation vessels and whatnot, that, that people love <laughs> sure. to make, you know, sure, sure. And, I, and we love having those too. Uh, but what we did was we decided to make it and uh, Swifty is, is great at understanding how the thing's going to work. Right. And, you know, being, that he has brewed so much beer when, when he put this brewery together he understood how how are we going to save steps and how are we going to get this beer made in an efficient way while still leaning heavy on tradition and getting the benefits of say a horizontal tank uh but making it work for us and and so it's sort of a hybrid newer version of what what we would call in a great pub lager brewery yeah, the good news for everybody listening is that if you have a setup already with cylinder conicals and everything, as long as they're not the, as long as they're close to like two to one in terms of height, the width, you you can still make great loggers. You just need that extra step where you condition. It doesn't have to be horizontal. We didn't even have the horizontals when we opened, but you do need to condition in a second tank, and then go into a third tank. So a lot of times people are trying to do it from one tank to two finish it in a second tank and be done with it and i don't i don't necessarily recommend that it goes back to what Sifty <laughs> said earlier he you know a lot of times as a brewer you got to figure out how to make it happen right you're in this right, brewery right. and you're like oh, jesus how am i going to make this work and so a lot of people don't have the choice you know sure. we, we had brewed and I, I brewed in one other brewery and he brewed in several other breweries so when it was time to put this one together we had some knowledge like 
here's what we can make happen and this will make the beer good and we'll be able to make legitimate lagers with this setup. And so we were, we were fortunate there. That is an interesting piece. You can come into it knowing what your yeast you're using, what that yeast does, how it behaves in these environments already. And you, you know, you can think about all those process steps and, you know, and, and because you had the formulative ideas around the beers themselves going into it and you can choose you know, the, those uh, pieces along the way that you're going to tweak and, and adjust and, uh, you know, and build a whole system around that. Yeah, I want to say that we didn't even have conditioning tanks to begin with, and we were conditioning in the cold room. And it took us like a yeah, month yeah. to buy actual, we didn't Again, have- Just we, making it happen, you know? You, yeah. <laughs> but, but what we didn't do is sacrifice like the actual lagering time. So it's like a lot of people are pushed on, on time and I find like, you know, people are proud to say they have a four week lager. And, you know, for us, it's like, whoa. You know, that's that's pretty young. But we were always able to we sacrificed serving tanks in the cold room to lager just to get through to get open and get get some money flowing. So you have to kind of be we didn't have the budget to put in every tank we wanted to start with. And we certainly didn't have the budget to buy horizontal tanks to start with. Um, but once we got up and running and got some some momentum, we were able to buy all those. And now we have, what, seven lagering tanks. Yeah, and we were, you know, we were doing well with our loggers using serving tanks, but it was a choice. It was, you know, what is our priority? And, and our priority was we're going to leave this thing laying around. It's going to sit here and we're going to make eight week loggers like this is how it's going to be. Right. And uh, I'll give a shout out to Will Kemper, who's the best at chucking up. Brewing. Sure, sure. And, uh, you know, we've learned a lot from him and and. and lean on the germans right and, and what they do we have our own version of lagers obviously it's not traditional german but it's pretty heavily leaning on it and so when we look at what they do it's like well we need to do that we need to make the commitment right and from the get-go we were like we're gonna if we're gonna make lagers we're gonna commit to this amount of time we're gonna get some way to make it happen and then eventually when we got some cash flow coming in we got to get horizontal tanks that was nice you know cash always helps uh but yeah and it was you know something that we chose to do and it's i think not a lot of people I, I guess you could make whatever choices that you wish to make but everybody's priorities aren't the same right so we're lucky that we decided to build this thing in a way where we can lager our beers as long as we think is necessary because we believe that that's you know we're trying to get a specific result and that's how we're going to get it that's one of the pieces we can't compromise on so there are things you can compromise on and try to make work. And there are other things that are really important and that, you know, is up to every individual to decide. But that is one of ours. And so we've done that from the get go. Yeah. At the other pubs, there was no way we could do eight week loggers. It just was impossible. It was, it was hard to do three week loggers. Yeah. So don't get me wrong. I get it that I mean, but when you make the commitment, it was it was definitely a commitment. Like you're going to do it and you're not stepping back from it. And it's actually a monster because it used to be like seven weeks and now it's eight weeks. It's just like, it, it's like, oh, let's, maybe it can be even better. And so that's kind of how that evolves. Well, but, but once you make the commitment, you'll never go back, but you just have to start by saying, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do the four week lager anymore. Yeah. If a, a really qualified and great brewer makes a lager beer and one time and his or her life lets that thing rest the appropriate amount of time and is tasting that beer and then taste the result 
it won't they won't go back you won't go back no right. it'll be like oh no this is what i want and you can do something younger and shorter if you want and that's a choice but if you're looking for what we were looking for it was like okay there's no choice for us in this matter we're, we're, we're gonna have to do it this way so yeah and you know I, I laugh when i think about brewers who are putting decoction above that and not giving the beer the length of time that it really needs and i'm like decoction is one thing but the beer would be so much better if you just gave it the time that, yeah that's true <laughs> it's, it's time like is priority wise again it's an individual choice but you know if you taste lagers that sure, sit around sure. and have a proper lagering duration and they they've been in that tank a long time there's a magic moment right. right and every brewer that makes lagers will tell you you put this thing in there and all the flavors are present and you're like yeah this is this has the building blocks right and then as it sits there long enough all of a sudden boom it all comes together and then it's one unit and it's all like homogeneous right. all of a sudden. And that takes time. Time alone does not make great lagers. Obviously, no. if you put a, a, you know, a re- average or mediocre uh, you know, brewed beer into a tank, eight weeks isn't going to make a lot of difference from four no, weeks. So let's talk a little <laughs> bit about um, you know, some of those decisions that you guys have made along the way. Like you know, maybe we'll start with your Czech Pilsner. Um, since that seems to be the oldest, uh, you know, Pilsner, um, or we can start with there, whatever you want there. Um, at Live Oak, we didn't even, we used American malt to start with because a brewery went out of business and we bought like Schreier malt by pallets and pallets for five cents a pound. I mean, we were so broke that the whole idea of importing malt and using imported malt was, right. was out of the question. We eventually started using German Pilsner malt and then um, some homebrew shop was actually importing Czech malt. So we started buying half of the container from them. And then they went out of businesses. And, and then we at Live Oak had to be basically the only importer of Czech malt as a brewery in the country. And so we were, Chip would bring in containers of, and we'd have to do it by hand, unpalletized malt in a 105 degree day in Texas. Come join me <laughs> to unload a container. Anyway, so that was a commitment, and then he could get specifications and get, you know, we eventually got, they got under-modified bud, bud malt, is whatever. It's just the same under-modified malt they use in the Budweiser, the original Budweiser. So that gives, gives it a whole different flavor profile. And then over here, we're, we're very pro-European malt, German malt, and use German malt as a base for all the beers, including the ales. Uh, we were using North American malt for the ales, but it just became kind of a hassle f- for both ordering and store. I mean, I don't know. We had some consistency issues, and so we were, like, not having consistency issues with the German malt. We were having nothing but great results, so we switched, um, like, five or five years ago. It's been almost the whole time. That's, that's one of the easy things, right? right. You just make the decision you're going to use European malt and... Uh, if you're looking at costs and stuff like that, I feel like it's, you know, it does cost more, but I don't think it's prohibitive. And for where, again, where we were trying to go with these beers, and we talked a little bit about character earlier, and, right. and every brewery has that. But, you know, that European character, and it's, that's part of our sort of uh, character, is largely because of European ingredients. I mean, you can't, you can't get that sort of flavor from American malt. I mean, I'm sure the American maltsters out there get mad at me, but uh, <laughs> German malt, man, yeah. is very distinct. When, when, you, when you taste it, you know, what, what do you think the difference is? Do you have a way to describe that difference in a, in a sensory way? Hmm. I guess I never thought about that. I guess German doesn't count. 
it's funny because yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think the North American malt necessarily tastes bad. It tastes fine for a lot of the beers. Um, yeah, yeah. I just, it's just very unique flavor. I, 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 yeah, I'm not, I'm not really good at the descriptors of what makes German malt taste good, but it's like something when I was talking earlier about closing your eyes and you can be there, you can't do it with North American malt. That I have not had a single beer where they're like, yeah, this is North American malt and it takes you to Germany. So it's definitely, you know, it's like anything else that grows. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, we use uh, hops from Germany, too. And, sure, and, and it's sure. all part of, you know, sort of what we were chasing. And we, we you know, copied and stole a lot of stuff from them. And, it, and right. it's like we wanted to make European style lagers and European ingredients are obviously the sort of foundation upon which you build absolutely you know, you're trying to get there and so what is what is that thing that clicks with you that says this takes me to germany i guess it's just memory yeah from yeah. from drinking european beers i guess yeah, yeah. Sen- your senses are pretty powerful and between smell and flavor you you can go back in time and, and instantly be in the beer garden in munich just from a recollection of that flavor uh it's stored yeah. in your brain somewhere I, there's a, uh, you know, if I were to describe it, you know, tasting your Pilsners, and I drank a couple last night when we were here drink, having dinner, um, there's a, a slenderness and a directness to it that, um, you know, where a lot of these, I think, um, you know, American uh, ingredient based Pilsners may have a little bit more bigness and, you know, uh, they are, there's, you know, they're not flabby, they're not too sweet but there's almost just this extra little more body character to it where you know yours have that and yet it still feels like it's solid but you know moving in this uh um, very sleek kind of way um you know and it's such an interesting thing to have it that kind of precision um and and fine-tuned nature and uh, and not having this kind of extra um uh you know stuff hanging around in that which you know isn't a uh you know it can still as you say make tasty beers you know but i'm really interested in how you know that kind of directness and that kind of uh you know precision is crafted so you use european malts and european hops um you know do you talk about who where you source them from uh we use vireman malt vireman okay and we love them we love you guys uh, and then we use hops grown in Germany. Most of them come from BSG. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of what you're talking about is fermentation also. Yeah. Sure. The, the fermentation and when, you know, fermentation is one of these things where it, it, it probably is, starts with the mash regimen and then yeah, moves that, into fermentation. I was right, say, right. It's like this particular process and moment in time, but it starts from the very beginning of your day. Right. 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 Everything that is involved in your day is going to affect that yeast. And we talked a little bit earlier about how yeast behave in different environments. And, and that's one of the, the most rewarding and most challenging things about brewing is trying to get your yeast to do exactly what you want it to do. And it has been my experience that even moving to another brewery in another building and doing everything exactly the same, it may still not do exactly what it did in that other brewery. <laughs> right, right. There's a little bit of magic in there and it's a living organism. And that, like really like razor sharp 
quality that you get in, in these really well-made lager beers, a lot of times their fermentation is just really, really close to perfect. And that starts with everything, you know? It's like, you can kind of look at the brew house and look at the cellar as, as two separate things, but it's all, it all affects Absolutely. the final result. Right, right. Even, you know, your mood when you walk in. I feel like your energy when you come in, you know, can affect your right, whole right. day and, and your process and this living organism at the end of the day. And, you know, it's it's something that is fermentation to me. It's funny because I think about it because I we, you know, I manage it quite a bit, but it's like it's like this one process, but it's everything, you know. And right. so a lot of that quality that you're picking up and that, and that I, I see it as like an elegance. You know, like this, this beer has a lot of flavor and it's very present and it's sharp, but it's not heavy or overwhelming. Right. right? And so that, that's what we have always searched for. And we've always like we scratched and clawed and worked for these tiny little baby steps to try to get to be world class. And right. That, and right. that's it's a lot of work for these tiny little steps, but eventually they'll add up and you'll get at least really close to where you want to be. And, and those things like we've always, our lager beers that we've taken them very seriously and, and we haven't compromised and we've been very driven and very specific about it. And that's part of what you're picking up when you, when you drink. The lager. Sure. And we're pro filter. <laughs> I'm definitely pro filter. We're, uh, <laughs> we, we filter all the lagers so that I think it helps. Like you're saying, what you're talking about is it gives them a focus uh, a lean, not leanness, but it, it it takes out things that you don't need in your Pilsner, which is like a, additional body or an additional like mouthfeel from protein mostly. And I think that it's important if you want to get, you don't have to serve them that way. Like I've had great Keller beers. We used to make a lot of Keller beer. It, they tasted good. Keller beer is great. But there's no way you're going to get to that that when you're climbing the mountain you got to kind of take a little tiny step at a time and i think that's part of it and i think a lot of people just think they can become a pro pilsner brewer without taking that step and i would i would recommend they they, they take the step to filter the their loggers yeah a lot of brewers you know and, and some of i don't want to offend anybody here some of this is left over from the early days so like you know, like the war on lagers. When, when American homebrewers right, started, right. they were like, oh, these are awful. We're never going to make these. We're making giant amber ales now. And uh, I, I think there's still some sort of anti-filter sentiment left over from that too. But, uh, and again, it's, it's a choice, but some people see it as removing something from the beer, right? And I see it as I am uncovering like I use this German malt and I use this German hop and I got this yeast to do exactly what I wanted it to do. I don't want this protein obscuring that in any way, right? So we filter this beer down nice and bright. It's like a process of editing, you know? Like where, editing. You know, <laughs> to, to bring it back to my world, yeah, you know, yeah. where you start with something that you know can be really great, but that first iteration of anything that I write is not ever going to be perfect. Yeah. And so it goes through at least two or three other editing sessions that are proofreading. So like, you know, like that's the piece that over time working on it and fine tuning it and taking yeah. out the extraneous pieces and amplifying the things that are important that you want there. You know, that's the process. You, you right. Know, yeah. And it's, and, and Keller beers are wonderful and we made a lot of them, sure, but sure. it's a different beer. Right. Uh, and I appreciate those too. 
But what we when we were trying to make German pills and and Bohemian pills, we wanted to go all the way and make it as if as they were being made in Europe. So right, uh, and and it really it is a different level of brightness and and, and some really tight flavors when right, you remove right. some of that mouthfeel because a lot of the stuff like the Hellas we talked about the Hellas a little bit earlier and. You know, I've, we've had a lot of people come in from Munich and, and just be like, wow, man, this, this Hellas is really great. Y'all did a great job, yeah, you know, yeah. and that's always nice. But it, it, it's like when you have a beer that's that subtle, you don't really want anything obstructing any of those flavors because those flavors are delicate. And a lot of it is is going to be something that's present, but not, like I said, knocking your face off. So, And, you, and we can uh, talk a little more about that. I'm, what You know. Uh, because last night when uh, Joe Stang was drinking the Hellas, you know, he described it as a just it has the right amount of malt character, just a touch of you know of, of chewy malt character, which it should have. You know, so many American uh, lager brewers leave the character out of Hellas that it should have. Um, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> well, and some of that is the German malt we talked about right, earlier. Right. That Weirman malt will give you a beautiful malt quality without being heavy, not being right. cloying, not being too sweet. Yeah. You can ferment the thing down dry and proper and still have the malt character in the beer. And then right. using that Weirman malt to do that for you. Yeah. You don't have to add anything besides Weirman Pilsner malt to make a great Hellas. Yeah. As, as your you, malt. If you use malt, base malt that's that great, you don't have to put anything else in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, definitely don't add any carapils or anything like that. Yeah. And it's up um, to whoever's making uh, I mean, it's up to the, yeah. If you want it to have all this body and stuff. Simple, yeah. I guess, is yeah. what I'm trying to say. Keep it simple. Don't overthink it. I do think sometimes people mistake, you know, there, there's all these, there, and your friend's a JBF judge, so that's nice to get to talk to him. Uh, because there is some sort of misconceptions between sweetness and character right. and the, that malt character that you get is not just residual sweetness. It's the flavor of that malt. And, you know, again, beating a dead horse, it goes back to the fermentation. If you have your fermentation right, all that character comes out. Man. Right. It just right. shines bright and you get it. If you're not exactly on the money, you may lose some of that. Let's talk about mat and mash and then get into some of the, those fermentation things. You know, as I've talked to other lager breweries like Ashley from Beer Stodge, you know, she's made that point that, like, it's not one thing that makes great lager. It's a hundred tiny things, you know, and all of those small pieces add up to something bigger. And you, you all are saying the exact same thing here. Like, you know, it's all the little pieces. So I'm just, you know, curious to dig into some of what some of those little pieces are and you don't have to give me all your secrets because uh you know i know you've you've been working for decades to kind of you know own this our secret recipe yeah. <laughs> I, I already told you just straight pills one. <laughs> that's a big one yeah well uh water yeah you know like we've done we did a, a lot of experimenting with different water and it was fascinating to me how all of a sudden there were different it was having different effects on the yeast than i had thought about before right changing your water hardness and, and the minerality and all the stuff that's in it all of a sudden i started seeing things in yeast that i didn't think would be related to such things and so i learned a lot yeah, there yeah. right but water's a big one it's like you you can it, and it's so complex man it's it's humbling to study water because it's so technical 
And right, as soon right. as we start studying, as anyone who's read John Palmer's book, uh, yeah. you know, can certainly like you can just spend to. your life studying that, right? And uh, but to make great lager beers, you either have to be lucky and you live somewhere that has really nice water, or you have to sort of and know enough about it to where again, those that character that you're looking for is going to be able to come out because the fermentation will be right. Because if your water's not right, your yeast isn't going to act right. So and your hop character is a lot different too. Uh, hop character can Wait completely different. change uh, if you alter your water hardness enough. Interesting, so it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, we, we had some really, uh, <laughs> at the time, uh, maybe, a, you know, not super great uh, re results, but, it, you know, we learned a lot from it, but it was like, oh my God, I had no idea you could affect the hop character so much by changing your water this much. Yeah. And so then we really dug in and started fine tuning it and trying to get exactly what we wanted. And we were able to do that, you know, and it's, that's something that has to be right. And, and, you know, she's right. It's a, it's a million little things. It's these tiny steps every time, not most of the time. Right. And that's another commitment. It's like, you're going to have to come in here, even if you don't feel like it, and you're going to do every little thing exactly right every time. And that's that'll get you a long way, man. So, I'm curious about that, right? And and it helps that you brew them all the time, you know. That it's these are core beers, and yep. you know, yeah. And your lineup has been the same. Um, talk to me, like, how often or or what that process was, and how many batches you made, and how many things you tweak before you thought you finally had it where you want it to be. Uh, it was mainly. The the main thing we changed the most, I guess, was water and yeast, you know, pitching rates and temperatures and durations and all those things. That's that's where mo the majority of our time spent. The malt and hop bills. Right. We already knew what those were. <laughs> you know, like right, we, had, right, we right. had made enough of those. So it was like uh, we, we want this, you know, the industry pills, which, you know, we're very fond of. We knew what we wanted it to be. And it was it's different than. It, any beer that we'd made before, uh, it, it's very similar, of course. They're right. Cousins, at least. Uh, but we knew what it wanted to be, and the malt and the hop stuff was, was something that we had a lot of experience with. I mean, Switzerland's been brewing for since the beginning of time. So, uh, <laughs> you don't you know, look like it. You still look young. He's <laughs> a kid, man. Yeah. <laughs> the Tom Brady of But brewing. when you start changing your water, and you can tweak water every batch of beer you make and you got to take all these notes and you got to make sure you remember what you did and and go back and then when the beer comes out you do sit down everybody taste the beer and you go through this century thing and you kind of discuss it and man you could do that forever and then pitching rates right fermentation temperatures all these different things that you could spend your whole career doing that do you so. still do that no <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. not much well, well once you once you get the process dialed in, you just have to repeat. Yeah. And things yeah. you you'll you don't I guess if you follow every detail, you don't really we don't see any surprises. Like every batch is um, is 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 the same. I can't tell you like a variation that I've seen in years and years on on the three mainstay loggers. So it could be slightly hop related from year to year, but that's about maybe it. <laughs> Pretty minor though. Uh, it, it is once you get there, it's like, oh thank God. Yeah. You know, and it's and that's one of those things where, you know, you could, you could, and I was very, and I can't bring home the point enough about water. If people aren't really studying their water, some people are lucky and they have good water. They don't have right. to study it, but it's really interesting 
to modify your water and then watch the yeast and see what it does and taste the different hop flavors and characters and malt characters. It, it's really something. So by the time you get through messing with that for so long, by the, when you get to where you want right, to get, it's right. like, all right, that's it. And you just stay right there, you know. Let's talk about some of the parameters in water that you shift that you found, you know, some of the changes that have had some real impacts. But first, ABS Commercial is excited to be a part of today's podcast. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. As a part of ABS Commercial's ongoing give back campaign, they'll be giving away an ABS Keg Viking keg washer in June. So make sure to periodically check the ABS Commercial Facebook page to find out when the contest opens and how you can enter to win a keg Viking. Are there some specific tweaks that you found? Now, Austin's got quote unquote characterful water. You know, it's uh, it's interesting water down here compared to where we are in, uh, in Colorado, which is, uh, you know, pretty, pretty dead neutral on most things. Um, you know, for you, what are some of those water parameters that you, uh, you played with that you found had some significant impacts? Uh, overall hardness for sure. Uh, residual alkalinity. Uh, we, all the stuff that you can tweak, we tweak. And Austin water is not bad. Uh, it's uh, pH. We mess with quite a bit. It's a little bit of an issue because it's almost 10. Yeah. Our pH is nine and a half. So that, that is automatically something that's, you know, has to be dealt with. Uh, but yeah, we messed around with miner- different minerals, different ratios, uh, different total hardness. Uh, all of it we messed around with a little bit. But again, we started somewhere that's not too bad. Austin's not too bad. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we're not as good as Colorado or like Oregon. Man, like the guys in Bend. Oh yeah, God, we always look at the ones uh, winning out of Oregon and, and Colorado. Like they have that home field advantage with the, the snow melt. And we're just like, oh, that water. Delicious, water. It's delicious, <laughs> and they're great brewers. On top of that, yeah. they're world class brewers. Saying, so, just, delicious uh, water. But yeah, so like when you you know there are places like if you just go a little bit south of here, right? Go to San Antonio. I, I don't even know how they deal with that water. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. So it, our, there are more extreme own, cases. It, right? Yeah. So um, when you were thinking about water profiles, did you start studying um, water profiles of, you know, you know, to get that kind of German or Czech character, European character? Or were you trying to oh, yeah, match water characters? Yeah, we looked at the Czech water and of course, which is really ridiculous, but uh, Munich, yeah. you know, Austin's sort of similar to Munich. Yeah. Yeah. It, we just had to get, I guess we just took the, some of the dissolved solids down, the TDS down, and it, it, it came together pretty quickly once we knew, like, that was a good spot to be. Um, and then the, adjusting the pH is critical, uh, especially on a very light pale lager. Um, anybody who's, you know, can, can, you can mash with some acid malt, but you're not going to be able to fix the sparge without adjusting it. So you have to adjust your sparge and get that pH down. Otherwise, you're just going to get, yeah, some, some flavors you're not, aren't going to be beneficial to a subtle Hellas. Yeah. And depending, you know, what your solids are, what your TDS is, your, your malt will probably drive pH. Uh, if you have too much buffer in your water and it's difficult to change the pH, then you really need to address it. But, you know, for us, it's not a big deal. And, and it's just something you sort of do on brew day, right? So we get the, the TDS and the minerals where we want it. And then when we get ready to mash in, we add some acid or whatever we want to do to drop the pH and go to town. 
Let's talk a little bit about, uh, uh, you know, so we talked about water and the impact on that fermentation. Let's talk about some of the, um, you know, direct fermentation tweaks. Are you guys public about the, the yeast that you use? Uh, we use Augustiner. Yeah. Yeah. From uh, Y yeast. And then maybe let's talk about some of the fermentation tweaks. Now, obviously, this is, you know, it's such a hard thing to talk about this on the podcast because what you do is so specific to the tank geometries that you have, the ambient temperatures, all the other factors that, that go into, uh, you know, this kind of process where if somebody else was trying to just, like they couldn't take your steps and then replicate it on their own equipment, it might not, it probably would not work the same kind of way, you know, but for you all, as you were trying to, you know, get this working and, uh, and continue to iterate and improve quality of those fermentations, um, what were some of the things that uh, that you were really paying attention to through that fermentation process? Well, you got to get all the basic stuff right, right? You got to get your aeration right. Uh, you need to use good malt, so you have all the stuff in right. the word that the that plenty the yeast of nutrients needs. for it to do. Yeah, its there's thing. all right. these basic things that have to be right before you even start. And then, uh, you know, we used several different strains when we started, I guess we were kind of about a year in something like that. And we went through a lot of different strains and we, and each one of them will do di slightly different things at different temperatures. Uh, but like I said, even different buildings to me seem to make a difference. Uh, I was talking to Matt and he said that they used Augustiner for a little bit at uh, Firestone Walker, but then it was just making too much sulfur there, you know? Yeah. So in different programs and different buildings they do different things. And so what the, I always tell people, because people ask me, you know, like, what what yeast do you use and what should I do and how do I make it work? And it's like, well, you got to get a yeast that you think you're going to, you know, you read the basic description and then you just brew with it over and over and over again and, and change whatever you can until you get to where you're trying to get. And that's going to be pitching rates. It's going to be temperature. It's going to be aeration. It's going to be, you know, how long do you let this thing go in primary? All those basic things until you and your water. Like water had a large effect on what this yeast was doing and, and what the flavor of the beer ended up being, along with uh, some sort of, I guess I would say, physical things, right? It, different water turned out it was affecting flocculation. So then all of a sudden you're like, well, I got to harvest this thing at this certain time. All of a sudden my flocculation's dragging a little bit because I changed my water. What, what happened there? And then you got to go in there and study that. So <laughs> yeah, there's all these things that we love, right? Sure, and sure. We're, uh, we're science nerds anyway, uh, except for now we get to study one of the most beautiful things there is, brewing science. Uh, and so it's like everything changes. And like you said, even ambient temperature, like when you're fermenting and using yeast, our ambient is definitely a factor, right? Because it gets to be 106 degrees outside. Yeah. So you, it's hard to hold a building at one temperature when it gets that hot outside. So you have to sort of pay attention to those sort of things too. And so it's very complex and it's, it's something that's going to take iterations and you just have to find what works for you and do it. I think there's some fundamentals though that, you know, you just have to do. And one of them is cool your wort down to, you know, as close to fermentation temperature as you can get it. And that affects your aeration. And that affects your aeration. So a lot of people don't have the heat exchanger because they're uh, designed for ale production. Oh, yeah. And they're not necessarily getting to, uh, you know, in the mid 50s or, you know, something between 50 and 55 degrees is a nice place to be. And they're not even close to that. They're at 68 degrees and they're pitching their lager yeast at 68 degrees. 
<laughs> and you're just cooling it with a cylinder conical at that point. And all of that to me is not what the Germans would do. And so we don't do it. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, there's some building blocks. One is get a bigger heat exchanger. If you don't have the heat exchanger, find a way to cool it some more before it gets, before you put the yeast in it. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully there aren't a lot of people still doing that. That's, that's one thing that sort of was pervasive, right? Because they would say, a few years ago. yeah, they would say, oh, you just go in in low 60s and then pitch your yeast and then drop it down. And it was like, well, that's not really the best way to do that. So uh, he's right. So if you don't have the heat exchanger to get the temp down, I, I sort of skip over those things. But like I said, the basic things have to be done right. You have to get your work cooled down. You got to get it full of oxygen. And that's... You know, another thing that varies that you need to look into too, like how much aeration are you doing and uh, take some readings and see where you are and see if you want to maybe tweak that a little bit. And uh, temperature has a, a large effect on that. But yeah, those basic things have to be done. And like I said, every time there is no most of the time. Right, I mean, right. it, it, you'll, it'll be really obvious if you have beer somewhere that, that gets it right most of the time and not all the time. <laughs> Yeah, and I, for us, we're not in a rush. Like, you know, I think we have a normal, to me, a traditional fermentation curve where it takes, you know, it's, you know, whatever we go, about one degree Plato per day or, or not quite that. And I think that's kind of very German and that's we're good with that. But we see other breweries who are able to do twice that or whatever, you know, they're I don't know how they're doing it. I still find that <laughs> kind of mysterious. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, the pitch rate will definitely affect future generations of your yeast and such, and you can definitely overpitch. And you can, there's a lot of things that, it has to be either t temperature related or pitching rate or something, but something where they get a fermentation done a lot faster, including the large breweries that make lagers yeah. every day. You could definitely, I, I don't pitch a lot of yeast. I, uh, I never discuss, you know, if, if one of my friends came up and talked to me about it, that was a brewer, I, I'd discuss it with them, but cause sure. they know it, that doesn't mean anything. They got to figure out their own sort of pitching rates. But I'm definitely. Well, no, somebody listening is like, well, Amos said that they have, you have to pitch <laughs> yeah. this much. And and it didn't work. Didn't work her. Yeah. But I am definitely on the low end. Yeah. Right? I don't. Okay. I don't over pitch. And that's. But that's the thing. Like, we built this brewery to have time. And so I, I right. call it dragging feet a lot. Like, I'm just dragging my feet, you know, like I'm taking it easy. And that is a benefit of us. our situation is we're never in a hurry. Right. right. So. We let that thing sit there and ferment very slowly. And that is a very German thing to do. And then, uh, but again, you know, pitch rates are very unique to each brewery and everybody's got to figure out their own. But, but I sort of did that for over a year too, just different pitch rates and took notes and drank beer, which is the good part. <laughs> uh, and so you got to get somewhere where you get enough reproduction, right? So you can get, you can keep managing this yeast and keep it happy and get enough generations out of it. Right. But also, I feel like you can overdo it. And I, I, and that's, you know, a lot of yeast is sort of art and magic. And, and so they, there could be different discussions on that. And I'm speaking strictly from my own experience. Absolutely. I right. feel like if you get too much yeast in there, you might, lose, you might lose some flavors that you want. So it's definitely a balance. And some generation, perhaps. Yeah, like the repro is a, a big deal, right? So we're, you're trying to, and that's another thing when you go in, you know, you're, you're pumping your word into the fermenter and you get this thing cooled down, you get this nice lag and you're going, you're taking it easy and you don't, you know, we personally don't want our, our yeast going into warm work and going hooray and, and going ape shit. So right. we just sort of, 
you know, that's another thing is how, how do you get as many generations out of this thing as you can while still getting the results you're looking for? So it, it's all related. And, and lucky for us, it's a complex problem that needs a lot of thought. So <laughs> it keeps us employed. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about finishing. Now, you mentioned filtration earlier. What does filtration look like for you? How, you know, you know, is there a typical way that do you go about doing that? And then, uh, you know, in terms of carbonation, uh, do you have any tricks up your sleeve in that regard? We uh, use a lenticular filter and it's basically a polish. Yeah. You know, we, we put our lager beers into horizontal tanks and they sit there. And so most of what's going to come out of the beer is out already. Right. So it's settled on the bottom of the tank. And so we come out of the horizontal and go through a lenticular just to polish it and make it bright. Yeah. And uh, we spooned our lager beers. So we get a lot of natural carbonation. So depending on how that goes we may have to top up here or there but usually not we usually just use natural carbonation on the lagers yeah so the filtration for us is easy uh and that's another thing that people used to have sort of nightmares trying to filter a beer that's not ready to be filtered like you know they do have limitations yeah, right so yeah, yeah. for us that beer's been in the horror been laying there for eight weeks it's got nothing in it it's, it's basically you know a clear beer going right, in and right. just a, a clearer one coming out so sure. for us filtration is easy and it's yeah, I've heard of nightmares of trying to do a lenticular out of the uni tank. And I think it's just like, Ooh. I think we're, you know, we're back to the fundamentals where you have to have it in a secondary conditioning tank or else we, we really can't even continue the discussion of filtration and where you want to get to because <laughs> it has to yeah, have that. It's really, I guess that's, it's really part of your filtration Yeah, is you got to get the thing ready to be filtered. And I never really thought about that because we've always done it that way. But yeah, I have heard of people trying to come out of a uni tank into a filter and, you know, you get a little yeast break loose and all of a sudden you're totally clogged. And if, if you had to build up a DE filter and you sat there for, you know, an hour and a half right, doing it, right. then you're going to be really upset. So Sure, sure. So we have heard some stories, but I, I feel like um, people have either decided not to filter or they're doing it like we do where they just polish it up at the end. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Are there any other elements of your uh, your lager brewing process that uh, you know may seem counterintuitive out there to uh, to to folks that might be trying to do it themselves? I don't think so. No, nah, that wouldn't be German. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and our thanks go out to the Germans. Thank you, man. No, we don't have any. Yeah, there's nothing that I think we we pretty much follow the same steps like. Ashley talks about everybody talks about who follows the the hundreds and the, you know hundreds of steps to make one batch of beer very small steps. Um, I can't think of anything that you would consider kind of different than anybody else. Yeah, and I, I mean I we, tell we, people all the time we covered water and yeah. and knowing your yeast and that's basically the difference. The ingredients are everyone's using almost the same ingredients. Yeah, it's like I everything I learned I read in books. And the books are available to everybody. So, you know, you can read about brewing science and get those basic things. And then, you know, whenever you get your brewery built and you get your environment, right, then you right. just have to change the things you can to get the results you're looking for. So, but well, we don't, we don't have any secrets. No. Well, what I love about, <laughs> you know, talking to you guys is that, uh, you know, if you were hanging out and drinking a beer together, you seem down to earth and informal folks and a lot of fun to be around and drinking that beer with. And, you know, I love that when we drill down on it, um, there's a seriousness and a precision and, a, a, you know, an incredible focus to how you make that beer. Um, what does the future look like for ABGB? Obviously, now we're in, you know, COVID times mm. and uh, or trying to 
try to like ease on out of COVID times over the next few months, uh, ideally. Um, but uh, but what what are the long term plans for ABGB? Where do you where do you see this going in the future? Well, we just got our first legitimate cans ever. <laughs> You're gonna uh, can beer. We're, we're gonna can beer, wow. which is somewhere I never thought we would be. You know, yeah. it was always like, oh man, this is. You know, when you get to where the beer is made, yeah, the beer is exactly what it's supposed to be, right? And that's a beautiful thing. It comes out of the faucet. It's the and freshest. The, and the brewer's the, there, yeah. and he's taking care of it and making sure everything's right. And so... It's poured correctly yeah. at the right temperature, all those <laughs> exactly. things. Right. And so they, so canning is a little bit of a... Uh, you know, you got you to put a little bit of risk in there and put yourself sure, out there a sure. little bit. But we're going to do it, and that's kind of in our future. Very limited. Right. Obviously, we can't make a lot of beer. We're tiny, so... We're going to do limited uh, distribution on that stuff. And we already started doing some draft distribution. And I think that's pretty much what, all we got going in the near yeah, future. We're, we're counting on everyone coming back. Yeah, we want to get back to normal. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and live music, you know, that's what that's all these things that, uh, and I keep telling people, uh, this builds character, right? Having everything taken away from you overnight is a good character builder because all of a sudden, especially if it's your livelihood. <laughs> Right. And so all of a sudden, all these things we sort of took for granted, you know, having bands up on the stage and our music family and all these things were taken away and then they're gone for, for the present moment. Uh, so we're looking forward to all that coming back. And I feel like it might be like Mardi Gras for 10 years. <laughs> like There's a lot of people that are like it's being very careful up. and being, you know, being thoughtful Absolutely. and all these good things and and trying to do the right thing. And I think once they're able to come out and, and get really serious about drinking beer again, I think it's it's going to happen. So. It's such a funny thing. We, we always talk about, like, you know, I think people were starting to get a little tired of beer festivals. Like, oh, you know, we've been doing this for enough time. We're taking them for granted. Yeah, you know? yeah. Are we really going to go that, you know, I mean, after this past year, I'm going to every single beer festival <laughs> that I can go to. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And everybody, anybody who throws a beer festival will probably be guaranteed a good amount of success. It's just, it, there is a lot of pent up demand yeah, <laughs> uh, for yeah. socializing and, and the good old days. So uh, we're looking forward to having music again. That's a big part of what we do. And so, uh, and, and some of the charity events we do with the bands are just, are legendary they're so much fun yeah we have a hell yes what we call the hell yes project that's our charitable arm of the abgb and it's very active in our community and we've missed some of that because sure, some sure. of it is not feasible under these current uh, restrictions you know so we're looking forward to getting that done we got a, a can for a cause that we're fixing to launch and i think that's going to get us back moving and, right. and maybe people can start coming together again and we can start doing music shows and raising money and stuff like that so i think that's one thing people miss is is doing good because it makes you feel so good and right. and when you're in a time like this of, of high stress levels and there's obviously things going on uh it's easy to forget that you should be doing good and helping your community because you sort of go into this survival mode. So I'm really excited that we can get back to raising money and, and feeding kids and all those things that we like to do so much. So, sure, sure. And, and things that I sort of, well, I did take for granted, you know, it was like, this is the ABGB and look, look how yeah, it operates. Yeah. And now I realize I should have been a little more appreciative of that, you know? So I'm, I'm excited that we can get, pass this thing and get everybody together again and and the, the whole idea of the abgb was to bring people together right inclusion and there's no tvs you'll notice it was all about sitting together and meeting each other and and i'm really looking forward to that even though it's a return mm -hmm. it right. still feels new to me like I, I feel excited about it so yeah, yeah. luckily we don't have to do any big pivoting yeah. 
back. We're gonna our pivot. Our our pivot isn't like oh we're gonna start like distributing beer across America. It's we're gonna try to get back to where we were because it was super super successful. Everyone loved it. It was like every, it seemed like it was a good fit for everybody. So nice place. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Well, I think that's a good place to uh, to wrap it up here. G&D Chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Sativa is the latest in the BSG Hop Solutions portfolio. Get great quality and reliable supply from Old Orchard. Take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of Brewery DB and check the ABS commercial Facebook page to find out how to enter to win a keg Viking. Of course, if you'd like to support this very podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button. And if you're a pro brewer, consider our new all-access pro subscriptions to combine both of the magazines, exclusive online content, and more. Um, so, Swifty and Amos, if people want to learn more about ABGB, where do they find you guys in real life uh, and on the internets? Well, we're at theabgb.com for... Uh for information about just general information and our stores there if you're interested in some really cool hats and stuff. Um, and then you can write me personally at brian at the abgb.com uh, if you have beer ideas or beer questions. And better yet, stop by. Oh yeah, and if you're in Austin, definitely stop by. We'll, we definitely take the time to talk to anybody, you know, brewers who stop in. It's a beautiful location to drink beer. It's you know, the beers themselves are immaculate, and you can taste the craftsmanship in them. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Super excited. So, yeah, I can't tell you how happy I was to have this conversation. So, cheers. Good. Yeah, thank, thank cheers. you so much, man. Cheers. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.